Good morning. Well, I want to start out by thanking Pastor for stepping in for me last week on such short notice and for his preaching on Colossians 1, 9-14, which was an excellent lead-in for this sermon today. And this sermon is on Paul's te- the Apostle Paul's teaching on the fruit of the Spirit, in which he lists as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And our transformative truth is the fruit of the Spirit. Let's bear more in 24. So I want to spend most of our time today working through his list on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5:22 to 26. But first, we're going to review what he writes in verses 13 to 21, in which Paul sets up the contrast, well, actually, no, the conflict, between, on the one hand, the desires or the works of the flesh, which lead only to the second death and eternal punishment, and, on the other hand, the fruit of the Spirit, which should flow out of the life of one who has been redeemed by the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, Paul says much which will be of great benefit to us, so we'll get into it right now. You'll find this section from Galatians on page 916 in the Pew Bible. That's 916 in the Pew Bible. And we will be reading Galatians 5, starting out with Galatians 5, verses 13 through 21. Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, the freedom which Paul is referring to in verse 13 is the one to which we have been called to in Christ. And as described by James Montgomery Boyce, it is a responsible freedom that leads to holiness of life. Paul further demands that we not allow our freedom in Christ to become an excuse for self-indulgence, couching it against the command that we are to serve one another through love. And that word serve has much stronger meaning in the Greek. It means to serve as a slave in bondage. So Paul is telling the Galatians and us that we are to be slaves of one another, which is actually the Christian form of being free. Because of the sin nature 
that all of us suffer with. Being slaves to sin is involuntary. We can only escape it through the power of the Holy Spirit. But being slaves to one another, well, that's a choice before us. And it's a source, ultimately, of great joy. Paul then proceeds in verse 14 to quote from Leviticus 19.18. And also, he quotes Jesus from Matthew 22.39, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. In verses 16 to 18, Paul sets up the contrast between the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit of God and the carnal pull of the flesh. It is, as he uses the word flesh in the ESV, the NIV uses the phrase sinful nature instead of the ESV word flesh, which that is, sinful nature is a little more descriptive for us. We understand that walking by the Spirit is not natural to man in his fallen and unsaved state. And also the implication in these verses is that the gifted presence of the Spirit of God in us who have been saved by grace does not remove our struggle against sin. Instead, the Spirit is what makes victory against sin possible. And that victory is bound by the degree to which we obey Paul's command to walk by, to be led by, and to live by the Spirit. And again, the Spirit is what makes victory against sin possible, and that victory is bound by the degree to which we obey Paul's command to walk by, to be led by, and to live by the Spirit. In the next few verses, Paul provides a list of the works of the flesh, or the sinful nature, and he ends it with this strong, that strong warning in verse 21b, where he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This warning echoes that of the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 6, when he says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Both Paul and John are speaking of the person who has a pattern of sin, and they warn them that such a person is outside of the kingdom of God. And Paul then follows up that catalog of vices with a list of virtues, which he refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. And that we'll find in verses 22 through 26, which I'll read now. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Notice that his, he opens verse 22. He uses the singular word fruit, whereas earlier in verse 19 he used the plural word works to describe the list of those sinful acts. This is an important distinction. One can be unrepentant and outside the grace of God, yet still not exhibit every single one of the vices that Paul described as works of the flesh. For example, I've read that even though Adolf Hitler uh, was exceedingly evil, perhaps being a contender for a place on the list of the top ten list of the most evil people in history, 
But he apparently, I've read, I'll say, did not engage in an overtly sexual, sexually sinful lifestyle. Uh, However, Paul's use of the singular word fruit in verse 22 implies that those virtues listed are a unity. I read one commentator apply the analogy here of a bunch of grapes instead of individual pieces of fruit. Furthermore, Paul makes the connection of this fruit to the Spirit, emphasizing that believers have access to this due to our living relationship with God. Accordingly, as believers, we are to strive to incorporate the entirety of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and not to try to exempt ourselves from any one of them. Also, when we consider Paul's labeling of these virtues as fruit, we might think that this fruit should come about naturally to those who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But as we consider his use of that word fruit, let's imagine us taking a drive east down Lake Road, passing by the many apple orchards that border the lake. One thing that should be clear to us is just how much effort the orchard owner devotes to planting, watering, pruning, and protecting the orchard, all to maximize the fruit which can later be harvested. N.T. Wright, an Anglican bishop who is known as an expert in the Pauline epistles, observed that just as a farmer carefully tends to his crops, these virtues which Paul lists must be thought through, worked at, cultivated, and practiced if they are to be prominent in our character. He also noted that character is formed by the thousand little choices we make every day and that we become what we habitually do. And because of our sin nature, vice sadly, comes naturally to all humans. But for virtue to indwell us and become second nature to us requires contemplation, choice, and work. The Apostle Paul is referencing this when he commands us in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word which is, trans, which is translated as transformed is the Greek metamorpho, from which we get the English word metamorphosis, which means to change from one form into another form. And this is an active command for us, not a passive one. And we see up on the screen how dramatic transformation can be when we see a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. That's what Paul is getting at in us. Because if we think of the contrast between our sinful nature and the works of the flesh, and as we go through the fruit of the Spirit, you know, we, we, we see that there, this is night and day. And this is similar to what we see with the caterpillar turning into a butterfly. So let's go through these nine listed qualities which are presented by Paul as the fruit of the Spirit. As we review them you will most definitely perceive that there is a fair amount of overlap uh, between them and among them. And I'd like to discuss them in three groupings. The first grouping being love, joy, and peace, which appear to direct our mind towards God. It seems appropriate that love, which is the Greek word agape, is the first virtue that Paul lists. After all, we learn from John in his first epistle 
that God is love. And Jesus told Nicodemus in John's gospel account that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And as Brother Dave read from chapter 15 in John's gospel, Jesus says in verses 12 and 13, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's great chapter on love, he tells us that love never ends. And that of these three, faith, hope, and love, love is the greatest. As Christians who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of Christ, who is the very definition of love, we are to show love to our fellow Christians and to the whole world. And we must remember the Lord's words in John thirteen thirty five: By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This, my brothers and sisters, is fruit of the Spirit kind of love. So, Christian, you can ask yourself, how are you doing with respect to the virtue of love? To go back to Paul's warning in Galatians 5.26, when it comes to, say, how you interact with your spouse and family or your brothers and sisters in Christ, are you ever guilty of being conceited, provoking one another, envying one another? So the second virtue of joy speaks to the happiness which a Christian has despite living in the secular, sin-filled world. Again, that speaks to the happiness which a Christian has despite living in this secular, sin-filled world. We must, however, draw an important distinction between Paul's use of the word joy and the secular meaning of the word happiness. Webster's Dictionary defines happiness as a state of well-being and contentment. And that actually depends on one's circumstances. The joy which Paul refers to in this passage is derived from the confidence and knowledge that we have of our eternal destination with the Lord in heaven. A great use of this word joy is presented to us by the author of Hebrews in the first two verses of chapter 12, where he writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In John 16.33, Jesus warned his disciples that there would be tough times ahead for, for them, And, of course, those words apply also to us. In the New Living Translation, he states, Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. This is important to us, because right now uh, there is much, indeed, much suffering in this world, and many of you have faced or are experiencing right now very difficult trials and sorrows. Despite all of the trials we will face here on earth, Jesus is telling us that we should cling to the joy which we have in the confident knowledge that our time in this mortal body will be nothing compared 
to the eternity which all who have been saved by grace through faith will spend with the Lord in heaven. I mean, think about that. I mean, we only know, we only have experienced this mortal body that we're in. And, and if we really contemplate what awaits us when, when we are out of this body, this body, our time in this body, will be infinitesimally small compared to the eternity that we will spend with the Lord Jesus in heaven. And I expect that some of you right now are recalling some dear brother or sister in Christ who perhaps showed us by their example how they chose to deal with suffering in their life by maintaining a confident focus on the joy which lies beyond this life for them. And we would do well to study God's word on this and pray that we will be given the strength and insight to follow that example that they gave us when we face our own trials. That leads us to the word peace, which is the third virtue listed by Paul. And that appears in every book of the New Testament, and its use here by Paul is to focus our mind on the peace which we now have with God because of the great cross work of our Savior Jesus Christ and also on the grace which was poured out upon us through the work of the Holy Spirit to draw us to saving faith. Having peace with God should be the most important objective in our life. I expect there may be some people here today who have not yet received Jesus' free gift of salvation. I want you to know that we are grateful that you are here with us today. And please also know, there are no coincidences with God. He is not surprised that you are here with us today. No, I look at this as more of a divine appointment in which the Holy Spirit worked behind the scenes to draw you here this morning through through the snow and everything else. Um, The Apostle Paul tells us in in Romans 3.23 that we all have a problem. He says, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the late theologian R.C. Sproul stated that our sins make us guilty of cosmic treason against the holy and perfect creator God. And because we are mortal beings, we have no way in our strength, and we have no currency, if you will, to satisfy the righteous penalty for our eternal offenses against God. So when a person leaves this body and stands before God, and every person will do that, if they still bear the stain of their sin, God will send them away for eternal punishment in hell. Way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve first sinned and our sin nature was established, God promised that in the fullness of time, he would send a Savior to rescue sinners from the eternal consequences of their sin. That Savior is Jesus Christ. And while suffering on that cross, he bore the full wrath of the Father for all of the sins of mankind. And just before he died, he proclaimed, It is done, which in Aramaic was also could be translated as paid in full. Every sinner is offered the free gift of salvation from Jesus, and we receive it through grace by faith in Jesus Christ. We must therefore believe, first of all, that we are sinners and that we deserve the sentence of eternal punishment for our treason against God. And then we must believe that Jesus is the sinless Son of God, that he paid the full price of our sins on that cross. He died 
He was resurrected and then ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And if you will receive him as your Lord and Savior, Scripture tells us that you are forgiven of your sins and saved from the penalty for them. Not will be. You are immediately redeemed. I echo the Apostle Paul's plea in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2, in which he writes, Working together with him, Jesus he's talking about, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So following this service, if any of you have questions about salvation, please come and speak with one of us. We'd love to help you to get the answers that you seek. Another perspective of this virtue of peace is the peace of mind which Paul addresses in Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7, when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, excuse me, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now Paul, of course, is not saying here that all of our trials and sorrows will be removed from us. But what he is saying is that if we approach the Lord in a reverential and respectful prayer, and if we bound our request to be within the will of God, that he will equip us to have the peace of God in our hearts and minds. This virtue of peace also places on each of us the responsibility to pursue peace with others. The Apostle Paul gives us this command in Romans 12, 18. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I'd like to share an analogy of for what our frame of mind should, could be with regards to this responsibility to be a peacemaker. I know we have some fishermen uh, here with us today. And if you're a fisherman, you've surely been out on the lake at some point in a small boat, and the wind kicks up, and all of a sudden the waves get choppy, and it makes your time out there quite unpleasant and unproductive, right? Well, many years ago, I heard about how old-time fishermen dealt with such a situation. When the water would start getting choppy and unpleasant, the fishermen would tie off a basket on the windward side uh, of the boat in the water, and he would cut up a couple of fish and place them in the water within the basket. And the oil from the fish would seep out of the basket and would surround the boat, and the surface tension of the fish oil would reduce the choppiness of the waves, calming the water surrounding the boat. Well, that should be in our thoughts as we consider our responsibility to be a peacemaker. We should always be singularly focused on spreading relational oil over the water in our interactions with others, especially with our Christian brothers and sisters. And in doing so, we will promote unity and peace within the church. With respect to being a peacemaker, if you were to take a secret poll among those who know you well, would they say you are a peacemaker? Or would they say you are somebody who is more uh, a person that perhaps sows discord? If the latter, I urge you to do something about it. 
One resource that is worth reading is the book The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. That's S-A-N-D-E. And we conducted a truth track series on this book several years ago. It's filled with practical, biblical advice on how to develop skills and habits for this important task. So we've covered the first three virtues of love, joy, and peace. The next three uh, virtues are patience, kindness, and goodness. And this set can be viewed as being concerned with our relationship with others. The first virtue in this group is patience, which is the quality of putting up with others, even when we are stressed out and under trial. The quality of putting up with others, even when we are stressed out and under trial. Well, let's, let's look at an example from Jesus, from when he was enduring suffering on the cross that is beyond anything that we can imagine. As God incarnate, just one word from his mouth would have ended his suffering and brought retribution and destruction on those who had abused him so much. But instead, what did he do? He asked the Father to forgive his tormentors. He assured the repentant thief on the cross next to him of his salvation. He asked his disciple John to care for and protect his mother. His entire thought was on others, not on himself. The patience which the Lord has extended to us, and that is also referred to sometimes as long-suffering, uh, should be the example which we follow in our interactions with others. God would have been fully righteous to just blot us out when we first sinned against him. Instead, he has been exceedingly patient with us, despite our rebellion. And just think about the situations when you might fall short of granting the patience which the Lord expects of you. And we should be considering this in all aspects of our life. For instance, how we interact with those in our home, at work, or maybe at school, at church, or driving your car. <laughs> so the next two virtues are kindness and goodness. And it's interesting that the Greek words for these two virtues are only used in Paul's epistles, and at that only a few times. While there surely is some overlap between these virtues, we can still focus on some distinctions between them. Philip Graham Ryken, in his commentary on Galatians, describes kindness as constant readiness to help and as the caring or as the extension of God's grace to the people around us through practical actions of caring. So that's constant readiness to help and the extension of God's grace to the people around us through practical actions of caring. Uh, and now, we all understand as well that grace is the unmerited kindness of God. In chapter 2 of Paul's letters to the, letter to the Ephesians, his great discourse on salvation by grace alone through faith, he uses this same word in verse 7, speaking of God's kindness towards us. I'll read verses 4 through 7 just to give us the context. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
Now let's just dwell for a moment on how amazing and expansive God's kindness is to those who have been saved by grace through faith. That instead of condemnation and eternal punishment, which we had so richly earned because of our cosmic treason against God, we have, as we discussed previously, the promise that we will spend an eternity of joy in the presence of the living God. That should certainly encourage us to show kindness to others. And moving on to goodness, this word appears actually only four times in the New Testament. Again, all of them in Paul's writings. And it's challenging to pull, I found it challenging to pull from those uses a specific understanding of what Paul means from this. Several of the commentators I read posit that Paul's use here conveys the idea of benevolence and generosity towards others. And in support of that view, I'm sure you've all heard this relatively modern phrase used to describe someone who performs uh, a kind and generous act. He did it out of the goodness of his heart. And it speaks to that. And it conveys this concept of benevolence and generosity. And, of course, Paul's use here is focused on goodness which is produced in the believer by the work of the Holy Spirit and not as a result of a natural quality in a person. So we should ask ourselves the question, am I generous with my time and with my resources to help others? Do I seek out opportunities to show kindness and goodness to others? So there we are. We've discussed six of the nine virtues of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. The last set of three virtues in Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit are faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these appear to be focused on the believer's inner self. The first virtue in this group is faithfulness. The Greek word that Paul uses for faithfulness is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. And my Strong's Dictionary defines this from two perspectives. Number one, as belief relating to God, the conviction that God exists and is the creator, creator and ruler of all things, and that he is the provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah. Again, they, he, he, it's defined as, a, as, a, as belief relating to God, the conviction that God exists, and is the creator and ruler of all things, and that he is the provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah. And the second definition that they list is that faithfulness it describes the virtues of fidelity, the character of one who can be relied upon. Now, Paul doesn't go into any detail as to which of these perspectives he's emphasizing here in the fruit of the Spirit. But if we consider that Paul begins this letter to the churches in Galatia by expressing his astonishment and frustration that after having spent much time and energy with them in the past to give them the truth of the gospel, they have since allowed false teachers to come in and lead them astray. That might give us a clue that Paul wants us uh, to emphasize to us that we must take seriously our obligation to continue to deepen our knowledge and understanding of the faith, being ready and able to discern false teaching and to correctly convey the gospel to others. To do that, we must live out and embrace David's words 
in Psalm 119.105 when he wrote, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That means that we just have to be constantly in this word and studying it. Uh, He might also have wanted to address the other focus of this Greek word, uh, faithfulness, which was fidelity and reliability. Perhaps we could be asking ourselves about just how reliable and trustworthy we are, especially when nobody's looking. So, and that takes us on to gentleness. Uh, The eighth virtue, it's the eighth virtue which Paul lists, and it is also sometimes referred to in Scripture as meekness. Looking again to Jesus who is the perfect example of all the virtues that Paul lists. Jesus is quoted in Matthew 11, 28-30 as referring to himself as gentle. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to just take a little bit of a uh, a side road here and just mention something. Uh, Three weeks ago, uh, Noel Armstrong uh, had a a group of uh, our men's group, the jurymen, over to his home for uh, a pre-Christmas breakfast, and it was a wonderful, wonderful time. And when we got to the point where uh, we were reaching the limit of how much of that wonderful food we could consume... Uh, uh, Noble and Heather's son, John, 15-year-old son, John, got up and, and delivered to us a, uh, a devotional that he had written on this virtue of gentleness. And he did a wonderful, wonderful job. I was so proud of him. And I say that just to mention uh, as an encouragement for, you know, parents out here in that, you know, they, I know that Noble and Heather, they, they have a, uh, uh, you know, a God-filled home, and uh, they raise their kids uh, in that, and their kids serve with them uh, side by side uh, here in, in our church. And it's just a real encouragement for, you know, how that, the influence that can have on young people. So um, as I searched my mind uh, for a, uh, an example of how gentleness manifests in our lives, I was drawn to the example of a doctor. Specifically, the type of doctor who specializes in bringing babies into this world. Can you imagine anything in more need of gentleness than a baby who is going to come through the arduous process of being born? As many of you know, a beloved member of our congregation, Don Battaglia, spent his entire career doing just that, bringing thousands of babies into life outside the womb. Well, Don also holds a special place in my heart. For I first met Don and his lovely wife, Joan, about 23 years ago, shortly after I was redeemed by the Lord. And in our first conversation, I learned that Don was the first person to hold my darling wife when she was born. Isn't that amazing? So while our broken society may try to portray gentleness as being weak, it clearly is not. Uh, A final point on gentleness is to acknowledge that gentleness is not incompatible with taking firm action when warranted or necessary. And we can see this in Jesus' actions when he drove the money changers out of the temple. 
It should also be clear to us that uncontrolled anger is absolutely not compatible with gentleness. Do you have any issues with anger that need to be addressed? Are you too quick to yell at your children or your spouse or your, your people you're with? Or do you find yourself going into a rage at drivers on the road? If so, this is something to address with biblical counseling. So we now come to the last of the virtues listed by Paul in this passage on the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, which is described as mastery over one's desires and passions. As mastery over one's desires and passions. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, Paul provides a sports analogy for this virtue. He writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, earlier I mentioned that we cannot view these virtues as if they come naturally to those of us following the indwelling in us by the Holy Spirit upon our salvation. Um, in the inclusion of this virtue of self-control and the fruit of the Spirit, it seems to confirm that, because after all, if the fruit of the Spirit automatically appears in the believer then why would self-control even be necessary? As I studied this list of the fruit of the Spirit, it also occurred to me that the Holy Spirit may have purposely led Paul to bookend this list with love at the beginning and self-control at the end. And I say that because it just seemed to me that these two virtues were foundational, operating perhaps like pillars which support the others. For without love... In self-control, how can we truly exhibit joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness? Back when I was young, there was a comedian on TV by the name of Flip Wilson who had a skit where he would do some awful thing, and then he would give himself a pass by announcing, the devil made me do it. Although that was all to get laughs, it leads me to suggest that we ask ourselves this question. Do I have times or situations where I struggle with self-control? And if so, if so, who do I blame or how do I justify my behavior? Have you ever heard yourself saying to somebody, you made me mad? You know, and the truth of the matter is they didn't make you mad. You allowed yourself through lack of self-control to react in a way that is dishonoring to the Lord. So I'd like to close with three suggested points of application. First, I recommend that you memorize this list of the fruit of the Spirit. And I'll tell you, I found it very helpful to in, in trying to memorize those nine words. I had many sleepless nights where I, what was that, eighth one or whatever? And, and then when I decided that I was going to follow my outline and and look at them in these groups of three, that all of a sudden it was very easy for me to memorize uh, these nine virtues. So yeah, memorize them and, and you know, add them into your morning or your daily prayer routine. Um, 
asking the Lord to give you the grace and power to faithfully exhibit each one of them in your thoughts, words, and actions. And uh, number two, for the brave among us, consider asking a respected brother or sister in Christ to help you to assess how well you are living and expressing these nine virtues. And for those who are married, ask your spouse. I I recommend you begin by giving permission for them to be honest and frank with you and be sure to start this conversation in prayer together. I'll tell you, Lisa and I have had some wonderful conversations about these virtues uh, as, as I've been preparing this. And it's been, it, and, and studying and preparing for this sermon has been incredibly beneficial to me. You know, and it, it's kind of interesting. You know, when we look at that, uh, that passage from Paul and we see those nine virtues, and we, we can read through them very quickly, uh, but there is so much depth behind them for us to, to take. And finally, purpose yourself to be the gardener of your spiritual orchard, to bear more in 24, to study what has been given to us in Scripture with regard to these virtues, and to strive each day to better emulate the Lord in living them out in your lives. And this will both bless those around you, and it will help lead to you hearing on that glorious day when you will be face-to-face with the Lord, these words from Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one: Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over month, much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's, let's close in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for who you are, the one true and living God, the author and creator of grace and mercy, We are grateful for the time that we could spend today in reviewing the Apostle Paul's writings on the fruit of the Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that with the ongoing help of the Holy Spirit, we will reap a bountiful crop of this fruit, all to your honor and glory. Amen.